Historians. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and welcome to another episode of Women of Her Story, a podcast dedicated to celebrating women who have made or are making their mark on our society. Interview remix, because I have your favorite co-host with me today. I have magical Mr. Mistopheles from the Broadway smash hit Cats. How are you doing today? I'm just fine. That's me. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. Perfect. We have a very special guest today. Her name is Jen Alford Teaster, and she is running for state senate to represent District 8 in New Hampshire. Woo! Thank you so much for joining us today, Jen. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh. That's great. <laughs> so what is like the short version of that nickname? You know, here's the thing. That's actually one of the um, characters in Cats. It's my favorite one. And it's funny because he found my cat ears that I used to wear when I would bartend that show. They're sparkly and he... <laughs> And he earlier, he was like, he was like, I don't want to relive cats right now. And I was like, well, you're about to you should mention that. I had him on earlier. I might as well just for a little while. But I, but not because we wanted, but that's what that looked like earlier. So it's a, it's a journey. It's a journey. It's a trip. We have fun. But we're here about you. We are. There are so many places that we could start, but I think we should start with the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. You have two degrees, one in geography and one in public health. How did you arrive at the decision to work on those two vastly different subjects? So uh, how I made my way to University of North Carolina. So I grew up here in New Hampshire and my I grew up with a mom who was a single mom. She had three kids before she was 18. Um, wow. I had my brother at 23. When we were very little, my dad had left us and we ended up moving in with my grandmother who had been widowed. And um, my mom and my grandmother, they worked minimum wage jobs to put food on the table for us. And when I turned 18, I had saved $265 working at a it's a oh. place um, in downtown Durham, um, where the University of New Hampshire is, and um, moved to North Carolina because I had a friend there who was willing to give me a place to stay for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, took my two suitcases, my $265. Second day I was down there, I got a minimum wage job working at a coffee shop, Tate Street Coffee House in downtown Greensboro. Mm. And I made $4.35 an hour. Oh. And I... Okay that job for about a year and I had passed out at work because I couldn't afford to eat every day. Oh and my gosh. The folks that I worked for had encouraged me to go to college. They had said, you know, there's really no reason why you shouldn't be going to school. You're very smart, very driven. You work really hard. And I said, well, college is for rich kids. It's not something that mm-hmm. people like me do. And in North Carolina at the time, it was $2,000 a semester for me to go to college. So I worked two to three jobs, put myself through my undergraduate degree, was exposed to geography in my sophomore year by um, a woman named Tracy Brown. She was an art teacher who used to come into the coffee shop. And when, you know, at UNCG, you were required to kind of pick a um, major in your sophomore year. And I wasn't decided. And Tracy suggested that I try geography. She said, there aren't a lot of women in geography. Um, You might find it interesting just knowing, knowing you. And I absolutely loved it. So I completely threw myself into the geography program, 
and um, got an undergraduate degree in environmental studies and then um, earned a scholarship for my first master's degree in applied geography with a post-baccalaureate in geographic information systems. And um, wow. I <laughs> love geography. It's something that is just so, and it sort of naturally pairs with public health. So uh, because it's, you know, very community-based, systems-based, human-based work. And so when, you know, after I had gotten my first master's degree, I worked the fire department for a couple of years as a mapping specialist. Um, Very in cool. Such an awesome job. I love that, is that job. That is so cool. <laughs> you can't see job. our faces right now, but we're like, yeah. Uh. Can we get that? <laughs> it was such a great job. I love the Greensboro Fire Department. I was 26 when I first started working there and they were, um, I mean, it was just such a great place to work. I mean, the people would give you literally the shirt off of their back and worked really hard. And so, um, I ended up moving, I had always wanted to come home to New Hampshire and my husband got a job here in New Hampshire. We moved back to New Hampshire and I uh, ended up getting a second master's degree in public health because I had been working at Dartmouth in the geography department um, as a spatial analyst um, studying healthcare issues with a particular focus on cancer care and realized that I was needing some additional sort of context for the work to be able to apply geography to medicine. And um, so I got a second master's degree in public health from the University of New Hampshire. Um, I've been at Dartmouth for the last 14 years. I'm a senior scientist in the Geisel School of Medicine, and I study geographic access issues related to the delivery of healthcare, specific cancer care. So like, what, what does that entail? What does so, that what does that mean? <laughs> so, th thanks for asking. Not not a lot of people ask me about my job as you know while I'm running for office. Um, <laughs> I think some of it is because it's such a niche like place of study that it feels a little bit challenging for folks to kind of wrap their brains around. So um, it can mean lots of things. So I traditionally we've we've studied a lot of um, retrospective data analysis. Who's utilizing what healthcare services? what types of barriers and facilitators exist in order for people to get those services. Uh, early on, when I had first moved into um, the program I'm in now, we had spent time focusing on utilization of screening and diagnostics for breast cancer um, diagnosis. So mm -hmm. looking at the utilization of MRI versus mammography, PET mm. and ultrasound, and at which stages would you need those and which populations and risk populations are best served by having these different technologies available to them. Mm. Moved into tomosynthesis, which is the 3D mammography, getting access to these technologies, who benefits from the most, um, studying the proliferation of use of these technologies in the population to ensure that people are having equitable access to it. Mm. And my particular focus has been on characterizing geographic access. So if you are driving two, three, four, five, whatever hours to get treatment, which treatment courses are you more likely to choose or um, uh, benefit from? So, oh, uh, right that's, now. That's so interesting. Oh, I was, I was, that's so, that's just, I, I don't know that I've ever thought too much about thought that. Thought about aspect. that specific like type of thing. And maybe that's from always being in a relative like city center. Mm -hmm. So it's not with access to like seven hospitals, two of which are walking distance. So, you know, and, and just, I, this just things that, that I, I don't think I've ever 
crossed too much my that. mind yeah. before. It's very interesting. So there are like five different domains of access. Geographic access is one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, when we look at urban communities, I mean, so we tend to focus on, for me anyway, like um, rural communities because we live in a rural state and the cancer center that I work at has a predominantly rural community in Vermont and New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. um, so our catchment area is what it's called, Vermont and New Hampshire. And so I tend to look at the rural disparities in access that are impacted by uh, geographic access, which also can be and are compounded by financial access issues. So when you're looking at an urban center, an urban environment, um, you know, one of the first paper that I uh, was the first author on, um, I looked at the difference between uh, closest versus actual um, use in facilities because we have to make the assumption that people use closest facility um, that may or may not be true and it can be highly dependent on where you work and so sometimes people tend to align um, where they're going out of convenience um, sometimes it's tied to insurance coverage and things of that nature so um, you know and then also just the method so I early in my career focused a lot on the technology and the methods used to assess geographic access so improving um, some uh, working with a uh, really well-known geographer named Fawei Wang who developed this method called the two-step floating catchment method to estimate supply, demand, and then that's based off of travel time distance, road travel time distance. Mm -hmm. um, wow. and, and those models, because of HIPAA laws, can be challenging to get access to individual level data so we know the actual address of where people are and that also, also often gets um, estimated at census levels and centroids of those geographic boundaries. So it introduces a lot of, um, you know, bias into the uh, amount of travel time. So being able to have record level data, individual level data, um, and looking at actual utilization versus what we consider potential utilization has impacts on um, people's behavior and way they access healthcare services. Wow, yeah. Wow, sorry. Very there's informative. A lot, uh, that was yeah, great. There was, I really enjoyed that. There's so many wheels turning and was... like little light bulbs going off in my brain that are like, oh. So that's like the first part of the portfolio of work they've done. The second part now we've moved into uh, qualitative research, focus groups, talking to patients, talking to providers, talking to them about what their um, barriers for implementation for particular screening services. So some now is lung cancer screening. Also moved into recently survivorship, cancer survivorship, and the transition from active treatment to surveillance and how that coordination of care happens between um, radiation and uh, medical oncologists to the primary care right. uh, for surveillance. And at what point, particularly in rural and isolated rural communities, does that occur? Um, and how we can uh, off examine how the use of telehealth and telemedicine can make the transition um, easier for the patient. Um, so that, so I have a large body of work behind me in large quantitative retrospective data sets. And now it's moved into some of the qualitative to provide some of the direct um, mixture with some of the patients and providers that exist in New Hampshire and Vermont. Wow, so, man. So that's what, that's what you guys are working on or that's what you're working on now within yes. that. That's so interesting. Wow. Of course, with COVID, now we're, you know, 
looking in the era of COVID and exploring and studying the proliferation of use of telehealth and telemedicine, tele-oncology right. in our communities and um, exploring how we can take telehealth and telemedicine out of the context of COVID and find the ways in which it's most beneficial for patients mm -hmm. post-pandemic. Because, you know, some cancers can be chronic and um, being able to, you know, give access to care directly in someone's home where they're at can be beneficial for them. It's a matter of figuring out at which stage in the continuum of care it's most beneficial. So that's it's also one piece of our portfolio that has shifted this year, um, yeah. which, you know, has been interesting. Yeah, especially, uh, I, you know, thinking about someone having to drive like five hours for an appointment, and that's not going to be a short appointment. That's going to be a long appointment. So they're going to end up having to most likely, I would assume, get a, get a hotel room or get, you know, there's just so many of these other steps or someone else needs to be with them to like make sure no one's falling asleep while they're driving because 10 hours of driving Jeez. in one day is too much for anyone to do, especially when you're going through stuff, you know? Yes. Well, we typically for our analysis would um, truncate the travel time up to three hours because we would assume that three hours might be the um, maximum time that someone might be willing to drive in a single day mm -hmm. to receive care. And, and so outside of three hours, you know, it was sort of burdensome. And also you know, when we're looking at you know, medical tourism, people who go out of the country to receive care. I mean, those are certain things that we incorporate into our um, analysis. But mm -hmm. yeah, so we would often truncate it at three three hours. Still too much. That's yeah. Right. That's 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 still too too much time no, in general. But I... yeah, that's so that's so interesting, and that's that's really. I like that. I initially I was like, these are two very different like subjects, how did you get into them? And you're like, well, actually they're very much hand in hand. And that's so, that's so interesting that there, there's a whole section of study of all these things that have just never occurred yeah. to me. The medical geography, healthcare, um, health services research, these are fields that which help us to understand how our social economic political context affects the way that people receive and access health care. Mm -hmm. um, it's something I feel really passionate about. I live in a rural community. I grew up in a rural state. Um, if, you know, in terms of access and, you know, another dimension is supply. So mm -hmm. if you don't have access to it, you're, I mean, we know this about people who live in rural and isolated rural communities. By the time they do end up getting treatment for care, they come sicker, they come with more um, illnesses, and so it ends up being more expensive and more difficult to treat, and they tend to have more adverse health outcomes. So this is something, and this is a way in which I am able to contribute to improving the context for people. Absolutely. Did you ever think that you would end up running for a political office? No. Um, I, no. So <laughs> um, I had realized, so I'm going to, so there's this, my daughter's, I have a daughter, her name's Birdie. She is just like a treat. I love her so much. Um, she will be five here soon. Um, and she goes to daycare about a few miles down the street from me. And now there's like a, a main street. I say main street, just I mean, literally the only thing on this main street is like a, a Dunkin' Donuts, a pizza joint, a couple of abandoned buildings, um, a few homes. And then like, there's like the volunteer fire department 
library, a church, and then my daughter's daycare. And so <laughs> like I would drop my daughter off at daycare and I would then go get myself a Dunkin' Donuts because God bless the Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Yes. Thing. Yeah, um, America runs on it apparently. Everybody <laughs> runs on it. My campaign runs on Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> True story. <laughs> so, I would drop Birdie off at school and then go up to the Dunkin' Donuts before I go home and grab myself a cup of coffee. And I would always see this woman there. And she was mom of a boy that Birdie went to school with, Andrew. And she'd work all day long. And it reminded me of my grandmother who would get up at four in the morning and all of us kids, all four of us kids ready for school and then go work at the Burger King all day. Mm. And I thought, how is it possible that I'm living in the state and basically this woman is recreating the childhood I had with this young boy, Andrew, right? And like, I'm thinking, you know, Andrew and Bertie are the same age. Mm. They deserve the same context to thrive in. You know, they deserve to have access to... Um, a context in a community that will help them reach their potential regardless of what their individual incomes are. Absolutely. So I thought about her a lot and I would be in the woods. And then one day I thought I, between my lived experience and my professional understanding of how communities and contexts work, I have, a, I ha will have a capacity that other people running for office just wouldn't be able to speak to. Because mm -hmm. I could speak to the lived experience of being, you know, housing insecure, food insecure, and also how a well-funded public education system, um, because I grew up in a wealthy district, I just was poor, um, made all the difference. So by the time I got to college, I was more than ready to succeed, evidenced by the fact that I earned a scholarship to my first master's degree and my postback. Mm. And so I realized I needed to put my my life, my story, my body on the line for people to see that return on investment that these things made in my early life for mm. Andrew. So um, I decided to run. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I was, I mean, like, if you think about the arc of my life, though, like I grew up poor without any sort of investment other than the community in me as a young person. You know, my home life was difficult. My you know, we struggled and honestly, there was not much expectation for what would happen to me once I left the house. Mm -hmm. And yet here I am, a senior researcher at an Ivy League institution. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, I mean, the arc of that is incredible. So I thought, well, if I can pull that off for myself, I can pull this off for my community. Yes. Right? So like I can apply that same drive and energy um, and, and, resolute you know devotion to helping my community thrive so I just started going at it like I started organizing people doing fundraising fundraising in the community um you know knocking doors which was my favorite thing to do to <laughs> knock doors because district eight is a really large district it's 24 towns Wow. So there are 24 senators in New Hampshire, 24 Senate seats in New Hampshire, and they fill about 55,000 people per district. My district is very rural and it's very spread out. Um, so uh, is, you know, for those who might be familiar with New Hampshire geography, it's like sort of like central western part of New Hampshire. Um, okay. And, um, you know, I live in Sutton, which is you know, sort of on the periphery, but it's a small rural state. I mean, more people at Hitch, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, than there are in my town, right? So, like, you know, I just 
threw myself into the work and the New Hampshire Democratic Party was very supportive and um, helping me to figure out how to do the fundraising, how to, um, I have a couple of really good friends I um, leaned on during 2018 cycle that I met through the process, Ben Ernst and Nick Taylor, like they're fantastic and um, just learned how to run a campaign, learned how to fundraise. Emily's List was incredibly supportive. I took her class on how to do fundraising. Um, I learned I had a skill I didn't even know I had previously. I um, learned how to fundraise. I raised $154,000 last cycle, you know, yeah. which is that's insane that that's what it takes in order. And that's a yeah. lot of faith for people like that. Yeah. That's, that's an indicator that like you, you like people want you in this position. Like that's such a huge indicator that like that support is there not just verbally but literally people are like take my money (laughs) well some of the things that were really i mean i have to say some of the best most meaningful contributions come from people like the guy i moved to north carolina with he still makes contributions to my campaign you know the guy i work the the folks i work for at the coffee shop i worked there for 10 years they he makes contributions to my campaign I, you know, like people that I've worked with or for, like to me, the fact that they believe in me and know me so well that they want me to be making decisions on behalf of the state of New Hampshire, like just mm-hmm. feels really potent and powerful, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the reason why that matters to me is because I feel like it's really hard. And I can say this as somebody who had never, never thought run for office, like, especially now there's so much distrust in people who put themselves forward to want to run for office that it's hard to believe that people are doing it for the right reasons you know um the running for office is often seen as something that people who want to aggrandize their sense of self do in order to feel Mm self-important you know um i see running for office as a relay race that you are jumping in to do your part um for your community i feel like it's particularly important in my circumstance because the state of new hampshire it's such an impact and an influence on me as a young person as to why I'm be successful now. And I feel like it's really, really hard for people who are in the fight to fight for these things, see that return on investment. So it feels incredibly important to me to show people that I know in the slog of your day to day, when you're looking at just the horrible things that come across the news, that you're not making a difference, but I'm here to say you made people like you were doing this work when I was a young child and now look at the return on that. And so it's working. There are people out there that will, will succeed because you put that work in, you know, and it may be hard. It's very hard. It can be very discouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important that you know that it makes a difference. And so for me, you know, being able to run for office is completely centered on that. And, and so for people who have known me since I was young and struggling um, to believe in me with such so motion that they continue to make contributions to the campaign mm-hmm. long after we've been in regular contact tells me that there's like a, a you know um a, a values consistency that it's really important for other people to see this was not born out of some sense of needing um needing something to fulfill me it's not for me this is for for the community mm. you know so um, that's where the fundraising can be really um, impactful um, and meaningful for me you know Absolutely. and so um I, yeah so oh I, I never thought I'd run for office and <laughs> you know even now when people call me a politician I'm like I'm a scientist, I'm a scientist. 
you know um i mean I, part of that is redefining what, a, what it means when we say that word you know for me it's a cycle so i lost my race by 647 votes and this race um so no democrat has held this seat in two decades because it's a very gerrymandered district mm-hmm. and so um when the gentleman who's a moderate Republican uh, retired from his seat, he'd been holding it for 16 years, you know, the race became wide open and Representative Linda Tanner in 2014 ran and she lost by about 13 and a half percentage points. Um, and then John Garvey, uh, who is a well-known lawyer here, mediator, he ran and he lost by about six and a half percentage points. And then when I ran in 2018, I lost by two points. So this race is achievable. And I think what, you know, so what Linda and John had started, and that would my my personal story and my professional um, career can do is take it over the finish line. And because I didn't, I was not active in New Hampshire politics. Nobody knew who I was in 2018. Mm-hmm. So I did hard work of, you know, just being constantly out there and available. Put my cell phone number on all of my literature so people can call me directly. I feel really passionate that elected officials should be personally available to the voters and constituents, mm. um, you know, because the roles don't belong to the person holding them. They belong to the people they represent. So for me, if you're going to be there, out there, you should be whole and that you should be available. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not something, so for me, it's about sort of changing what, what we consider can be Absolutely. politician. And then also, I didn't win my race, but two of my closest girlfriends decided to run for office afterwards, and they never, they never considered it. My one of my closest friends, she won her primary and is in a very safe Democrat, so she will be the next Senate District 15 senator in New Hampshire. I'm oh very excited about that. And then my friend Leah, who ran for executive council, came in third, um, but it was a highly contested race. So I feel really proud. Um, I have been very intentional in the last cycle to be very prolific on social media to show other young women, young people, how you can run for office while you have a family and a career and that it's fun. And this is joyful work and, you know, giving to your community is, is, is more than just like complaining about what's wrong with it. It's also about celebrating the beauty that exists within your community. So um, that feels yeah, I've been able to achieve. Absolutely. I would love for you to win, and then I want to move to your district. <laughs> I am like Are so jealous for the inevitable. Like, it, like you win, and I'm just like, I feel so inspired. I want, I want that ambition. Like, he's he. Yeah, if incredible. I don't know if you can feel his energy through this. So he's inspiring. Like... You just did so many things, and I'm like, I want to vote for you now. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's so that was just so inspiring and moving, and I just uh, and that that level of ambition, and also being able to, you know, personally contact you. I didn't. I don't even know. Like, I couldn't even when you were saying that that almost seems like a thing from like the twilight zone when like <laughs> like from the 1940s when like the people would talk to the person higher up that doesn't seem you know feasible but we got in contact with you through twitter yeah and, you know you're amazing. saying all you're, these things yeah. about the phone you know the phone call just and i'm just being accessible is so important you know especially especially for young in, people like us uh-huh. yeah and even just in general like in in a in the day and age of best you know with technology that we are now there's a lot I feel like 
it should be easier to contact people than it is, you know, when, with like representatives and you, you just feel like so many times it's never even acknowledged or you get the like mm -hmm. bulk email response back. Like, thank you for your input, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, that's not anything. I know you're not even it's looking at this, yeah. <laughs> like, you know? And, well, and one of the things that's challenging about that is like, I, just as somebody who had not run for office before, like, it's almost like there's a, a wall between an information wall between what you see in the media about who these people are and then who they actually are. And one of the things that I feel adamant about is that you bring your whole self to the work. Mm -hmm. So like one of the things that I really want to challenge is this idea that any one single candidate can fix it all. We all have something to add in the collective, you know, in this in this work together and that the that a legislature uh, body of representatives should be representative of the underlying population. And, you know, like, you know, with the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, she is an incredible woman, a powerhouse of a woman, and all of our body autonomy rests on the shoulders of this one woman. Yeah. yeah. And for me, you know, we should all take personal responsibility in ensuring our, you know, women's health care is available to us, know um, all the other work that she'd done like the fact that women can have a mortgage without having a male co-signer I mean yeah. incredible ways in which she touched our lives and so we all have a shared responsibility in creating the world that we want to live in mm -hmm. and it should not it should encompass the reality of the individuals we vote to office and so for me being personally available is is so people know I'm like a real person like I had a gentleman and I had some pretty I've not had a lot of people reach out to me, but I've had a couple of really powerful experiences through that. So there was this gentleman, Harold, who reached out to me and had said, hey, I saw your stuff. I'd, I'd like to meet you and talk to you about climate change. And I thought, okay, you know, he lives in this really um, rural um, town, Washington, New Hampshire, which is beautiful. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to be canvassing in Washington. I'll come by, you know, at like 3.30 or whatever, 3 o'clock. And um, We'll have some time to talk. And I show up and it's like a single wide trailer, first kind of a jar, nobody's there. And I was like, well, the cat comes running out, knock, nobody's there. I thought, well, I'll just go knock a couple of pack, like a couple of like doors up the street and then I'll come back. And then I came back, he was there and so was his wife and they had just gotten back from the VA and he had received um, dialysis for um, some uh, uh, liver issues he was having. And, um, invites me in, he starts talking about climate change, which was really just a ruse to get me to come to his house. So he could talk to me about the economic situation that him and his wife are in because she had had a very debilitating illness that put her in a coma for six months and they lost their house. And then he is um, you know, a retired service member who has you know, very serious liver condition and, um, sorry, kidney condition and um, uh, they feel like their economic situation is like unfixable. They wanted to show me pictures of their grandchildren. Oh my they goodness. wanted me to look an answer for whether or not I would look out for them. <gasps> and oh like I, gosh. so Laura, Laura and Harold and I remained friends, you know, like I was so overcome by that Beach, you know, and, and Laura was standing in her living room and she said, I know that our situation 
won't be fixed. But I'm, I want you to see them and I want you to know they matter and I want to know that they matter to you. I mean, it wow. makes me teary-eyed to think about it I, now. I'm That's... getting all emotional over here. And she's still, I mean, like, every, she's had a couple new grandbabies. She'll send me pictures of the oh. new grandbabies. Like, just a really sweet and lovely family. And I feel like, you know, through a series of health issues that have caused them to experience extreme economic um, dysfunction in their family, they're not able to recover. But their sole concern was to make sure that they, that they knew that if they voted for me that I would keep those children in mind you know oh. and so for me like that's beauty in making myself personally available to people they offer themselves completely mm-hmm. and so I think of them when the work is tough you know and you know because it can be very difficult um mm-hmm. yeah so the ability to put myself out there uh, personally has impacted me as well as the electorate yeah. you know so you know, um, it's like you get you get you receive what you give so if you make mm-hmm. yourself available people will also make themselves available and be like all right if you're gonna do that let me tell you what's up and mm-hmm. this is why i actually feel x y and z and this is why i you know this is where my circumstance has put me what are the things that you will mm-hmm. consider while you're making decisions you know, mm-hmm. that's so important. That's yeah. so important. Well, the work of politics in, in legislating is about the people who live under the, you know, the, the laws of the land and they should reflect their highest values. And they can't reflect their highest values if you don't draw to mind the people who are impacted by them. So, mm-hmm. you know, for me, like running for office, like I have been impacted by many things at our state in New Hampshire. And I, the, drive and the commitment to the work is fueled by the people that I met and meet when I canvass and do the campaign work. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, I'm not a politician. I'm a scientist. <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I, 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 I want when people think of politicians moving forward to lay this groundwork, it really can be a whole person who, you know, wholly wants the, you know, community to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Absolutely. on on the token of of people being weary of politicians and thinking they're career politicians or you know just looking for a power grab or that they're out of touch anything like that what are what are some you've touched on a few ways but what are some ways that you are active in the community that you're wanting to represent? Oh, that's such a great question. So most recently, I am. I have signed up to be, and I am a supervisor of the checklist in Sutton. So what that means is I help register new voters. And so in New Hampshire, we have same-day reg- voter registration. So on, you know, at the primary, we, um, I'm an election official. And so um, and for those listening, because I am a candidate, I don't count races. So I, you know, there are three supervisors of the checklist. There's one moderator who kind of orchestrates the whole layout. Um, for me, being involved in the election process, making sure that it's accessible for, for folks, especially during the pandemic, uh, where absentee voting has, um, you know, has seen a dramatic increase, is really important. Um, and so we, because and also because of my work in public health and uh, being able to help our town, our small town, which has 800 registered, no, 1,800 registered voters, um, set up. Uh, our town hall to be able to accept and process um, 
ballots and people as they come in to vote um, in, a, in a way that, uh, you know, maximizes infection control mm-hmm. has been really important um, to be able to do this cycle and to get people registered. It's always like the first person I registered to vote, I was so excited and they had just moved here and like, they're like a little bit freaked out by my enthusiasm like you have no idea how great this is like you just moved here and you're registering to vote like sometimes it can be really challenging to put that as like the electricity sign up to vote when you move you know so like just very exciting so i've been um participating in in that way in in the supervisor's checklist um after i lost my election because we're in a presidential cycle we had a lot of democratic candidates come here and so it was really important to me continue to elevate the issues in our district for those presidential candidates. So I would often either have lunch or dinner with candidates and talk to them about the issues of District 8. Some of them actually came here a few times. Elizabeth Warren, I introduced her at a few events. She'd come and had small group meetings. Um, so she, because one of the things that I really want to dismantle for folks is that like, mo- like rural communities are not monoliths. You know, there's a lot to be offered in our communities mm-hmm. and also a lot of challenges, but it's also a really wonderful so we need to advocate for them as the way they actually look and feel, not by trends and statistics, um, which can be beneficial. Um, that book, Flyover Country. You ever read this book? I haven't read it, but I've heard I've heard of it. Yeah, so it's, it really does a good job of characterizing how people see rural communities from like a three thousand foot view, basically, um, as just being like broken and you're, you know, like uneducated and unfixable Bail and whatever. Um, yeah. yeah. So I um, so I often talk to presidential candidates about that so they could have a like an actual sense of what it was like to be in rural communities um new hampshire anyway and um also you know over the years i've I've volunteered at our church's homeless shelter for eight years uh, which gave me a really interesting perspective on the shifts from like the 2008 so like prior to 2008 financial collapse we saw um a lot of people working two and three jobs that just could not afford first and last month's rent living in mm-hmm. our shelter. And, um, and then and it was an overnight shelter, so they wouldn't, they couldn't stay during the day. Um, also the president of our church's relief society. I had you know, been on the board of the New Hampshire women's foundation. I wrote a policy paper on equal pay in New Hampshire, interviewing 200 some odd people across different demographics about what they consider the most um, important influential issues and women's equality and um you know equal pay was the top one and we were successful in getting a law passed in 2014 um to ensure that um you know pay equity is implemented so people would no longer be punished if they shared their pay with colleagues because that's one way in which women would not know they were being paid disproportionate um that senior that being Pay increases and differential had to be based on bona fides, you know, um, you know, actual things that you can tie, not references right. um, or assumptions about people's home lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really proud of that. Um, Excellent. Yeah, so I do lots of what stuff. What you're in my saying community. is you're active in your community. Yeah, I'm very active so, in my community. So what you're um, saying is you're not all talk. <laughs> no, I'm definitely not all talk. I mean everything I say, and I I follow through and. Um, care very much and care through action. Um, you know, mm-hmm. action is my love language. They would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so yeah, um, it really genuine. It 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 sounds like it because it's it's based on the entire trajectory of your life that you have spoken on. It's very much based on 
action. Yes. You know, continuous like, okay, well, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to do this. Okay, well, now I'm going to do this. And it's, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of um, wavering. It's mm -hmm. a, it seems to be a good, a, a, a large amount of this is what I want to happen. So I'm going to make it happen <laughs> instead well, of, well, that's the, yeah, that's sort of the that is drive. I mean, I, I often talk about working towards making sure that the impact matches my intentions. Mm. You know, my intentions are to do good in the world, but to take, you know, to help give a mark in my small energy signature in the world that would improve the lives of those around me and so I work really hard to try to match intention with my impact you know and so um, you know on the topic of my life trajectory so I love Thich Nhat Hanh are you familiar with this Buddhist monk I don't think so no. no so he talks about this idea of composting pain so you know you turn you know pain into flowers you turn pain and you know so for me early part of my life was very painful. I mean, I struggled a lot. And I mean, with, with uh, family dysfunction and poverty, and then, you know, moving to a state where I knew one person and had a place to stay for two weeks and completely, you know, building a life from nothing. So I experienced a lot of difficulty and trauma early in my childhood. And so for me, the most um, important um, way in which I heal from that is by using that pain and energy to help make sure that it happen to other people. Mm. You know, so it's composting the pain into flowers and goodness in the world. You know, I so love that's that. Really I've, I've never heard that type of phraseology, I guess, in in composting it because there's I I feel like at least uh, let's say in the arts people are like pain and suffering helps you create good art and you can, you know, it's like, that's not a healthy way to phrase that because then people think they have to go through pain mm. in order to create yeah. something good, but it's not so much that the pain itself, like, like going through general pain is what helps you create it's or, or, you know, just create your life, create your flowers, whatever it's, it's what you're doing with that pain. And if mm -hmm. you're letting it grow into something else, or if you're letting it sit as like a dark tumor <laughs> in your chest, that just like weighs you down. That's such yeah. a, I'm, I mean, yeah. for me, it, you know, it, I, I would have loved to have a childhood that felt normal, whatever that feels, whatever that means, you know, like yeah. I would love to have a childhood where I was embraced and cherished as a young person you know, um, in my own family, I would have loved to not have been full of shame and, you know, with the fact that we, you know, used food stamps and welfare, like, you know, I would have, I, I mean, that's not a, like a, something I look back on and feel that I am glad that that happened to me. It's just, that is what it is. And so right. for me, like I have a few options in the world about what I do with that. And, um, you know, and sometimes it gives me, uh, and then also I remember like look at look at all the good I've done in the world for myself like what a gift would it would be to be able to do that for others in in a in a in a big way you know and like do I have that capacity it's like a personal challenge like you know it's like a healing transformation to be able to help other people so they don't suffer and so you know 
pain and suffering is inevitable in living. I mean, that's just how it is, you know, <laughs> like um, it's for me, it's like what you can and choose to do with that, you know? And so I'm very open about that pain and suffering. I don't hide it. I don't, you know, I have um, the work of integrating it into my story. It's not all of who I am. It is a part of who I am. And when I can, I use that to advocate for other people to say, you're not alone. And that the reason why I'm advocating for these things is because I know how difficult they can be, you know, going to the state house and advocating the expansion of DCYF workers because I was a child in need of services as a young person in New Hampshire. Mm. Like saying to legislators, this matters because look what you create in the world when you invest in these things. Mm. You know, and so like I received these services through the Division of Child Youth and Family Services. And if I had not received them, would I be here today? Uncertain. Yeah. Isn't this what you want when you advocate for these things? You want a happy, healthy adult contributes to their environment in a way that makes things better so like that's the point of all this work and so you know for me there's a sense of um empowerment and being able to utilize what is you know um so Mm -hmm. what is that yeah Uh what advice do you have for someone going through a similar upbringing or and like you know going through the turmoil of being paycheck to paycheck, having to ask, like, you know, uh, ask for help that what, what sort of advice do you have for someone who is going through those sorts of low points right now who feel like no one's investing in them? Mm. Yeah. So I think that sometimes like what in the moments where I was like, you know, sort of stuck or rudderless or feeling very alone or was alone. I mean, not just feeling it, I was alone. Um, myself to sleep because I was hungry and afraid like a very real place I was in Mm. Um, I think as human beings we're designed to keep going forward I mean we are designed to survive you know we will fight death we will fight you know perishing you know like that I would lean into that because that's your you know I often would describe to people that that's you know I would say I have a strong pilot light you know, like we all have a pilot light. Sometimes it flares, sometimes it kind of diminishes, you know, um, no matter how small it gets, don't forget it's there. You know, like don't forget it's there. And, you know, and I, and another thing that has helped me through the years as well too, is realizing it is to be here breathing in the moment. Because if you think about all that has had to be in order to make you who you are to sit in this moment, it's pretty remarkable. And it's easy to lose sight of that you know and so you know feel the pain feel the grief find the thing to do that's going to improve even for that moment so small small little steps I often do that when I feel frustrated small little bits of progress sometimes and they're not like grandiose things I think sometimes people tend to look for these like monumental milestones in their life to continue to move forward but sometimes I mean, like I was having a pretty crappy week last week, feeling a little overwhelmed, scared because I can't go knock doors. I'm doing phone calls. And then I got this note in the mail from a gentleman I canvassed two years ago. I'd spent, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes at his door. He was an independent voter, sick of politics, a former geographer, went through cancer treatments. And we spent a good amount of time just talking about how frustrated we were and are with politics, but also how these conversations are so important and that, um, we both wanted to create a world we were proud of. Mm. I hadn't seen this gentleman, Andrew, for those two years. And I got a letter in the mail, just a letter in the mail saying, thank you for running it again. 
I voted for you then, I'm going to vote for you again. So like, and so like that, that was a seed, right? So like, I think of these things as like little seeds you plant along the way. And how would I have known that two years later in the moment when I needed it, I was going to get that in the mail, mm-hmm. you know? So like, you know, plant the seeds of the things you want to sprout later, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, and, and occasionally. <laughs> I mean, you know, as a person, like you are that and not, not everything's going to be a milestone moment every day. Sometimes the milestone moment is putting your feet on the floor to get out of bed. Yeah. And those things are meaningful. And so for me, I just remind myself that, you know, sometimes a little bit of progress is all it really takes to keep moving. And I can get overwhelmed if I start to think about monumental shifts, arge that I want to make move in this world. And it feels unachievable. If you dial back, um, you know, looking at the tiny steps, mm. um, that can be really impactful. Like that, that, that uh, Chinese proverb, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Mm. That in mind, I do that mm-hmm. a lot. I keep that in mind. A little thing, what is that little thing you can do right now that, you know, sort of makes a little bit of progress. And sometimes it's just resting and drawing back and observing and saying, you know, am I on the right path? Am I making the impact I want? If I'm not, how should I re sort of like reorient and reconsider? And um, yeah, everybody goes through tough times. I mean, everyone, you know, and I've seen some dark times and I've seen some pretty incredible times, but that's like the arc of every person's life. So you're not alone. Um, do what's meaningful to you to make progress that you will be proud of. Um, that's the advice I would offer. Yes, that is excellent advice. And I've just like stored 15 nuggets of that within, <laughs> I call, I, I, I always say I have a little man in my brain, Steve, who is like going through the files and he's just filed away Everything, all I know. of these little things. So motivational. I feel driven. <laughs> I feel. He's like ready to go do I a feel, bunch of stuff I know. Right I now. feel so hopeful. <laughs> and, and, and I don't everything you say just keeps this lasting effect on me where it's just like it's not like like you said earlier everything just seems so bleak but it's really not it's it's only it's such a it's such a narrative that they that they try to drive but yeah you you paint this positive image and i just like we just have to continue doing what it's we're doing the relay race and making that, you were that effort. Saying. Yeah, we just have to keep running. And I just I just get so, sometimes I just sometimes don't you get feel with like it. That's running. when you pass the baton. No, sometimes that's they the impact. Line Thirty like, miles further. So sometimes <laughs> yes. the finish line to a whole other place, and then it's like, why, exactly. why do I want to keep yeah. running? And then you hear, I made it to the finish line, yeah. or like the finish line is it's actually not that far. Or <laughs> if you skip a quarter of the of the way there, like you'll, you know, yeah, oh, you it's just something yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh, oh it's so good. Thanks. I, I, well, but like the the impact this conversation is having on your energy. I mean, that energy already exists inside of you. That hope, that drive, that you just. And this is where I feel like in moments where you're having connection with people and you feel that sense of rejuvenation, it's because you want to be rejuvenated because you know it exists. Yes. And sometimes you do that for other people. Yes. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you can, you need it done for you. So like, this is a shared value. This is a shared value that we believe in the world that we live in. And we believe we have some small amount of control to be able to make it a better place. And, you know, 
it won't happen overnight. It happens yeah. in these interactions and then we cascade those interactions. So mm. I'm speaking to what already exists inside of you. It's just a matter of you sharing that with other people <laughs> when you move to the world. It's just, it's untapped. And I guess I just, it's not, no <laughs> one's tapping it. And you're like, you're saying all these things, all these buzzwords and I'm just reacting. <laughs> Buzzword, like, yeah. Oh, He's this like, is so good. <laughs> yes. Hope. Hope. <laughs> well, speaking of hope with your background in public health, yeah. I'm sure you have a ton of ideas and plans related to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What are some things you'd like to implement that are going to keep us moving in the right direction or like turn us into moving into the right direction? <laughs> so for me, when I'm thinking about the pandemic, it's largely shaped by the work that I'm doing. So um, the exploratory work in the, in the early response research on the use of telehealth and telemedicine and tele-oncology. So for me, what that means in our rural communities, um, building out the infrastructure that would allow us to deliver health care in a way that's um, stable and consistent in the infrastructure. So we've had some CARES Act funding delivered to New Hampshire that would allow us to build out infrastructure in a couple of the small towns. For me, when I look at broadband access, um, broadband infrastructure, it really is me become, you know, the equivalent of roads and mean need it in order to access, you know, it, use of remote education right now we need it for people who are working from home i mean we just had the internet fritz on us you know so like yeah. um so it touches all areas of our lives and in telehealth telemedicine being able to reach populations as a means um, in their homes as a means for infection control is one thing that i really want to work on should i get elected in the state senate is to ensure that that infrastructure exists so we can deliver care in a way that's meaningful and responsive to the individuals who need it. Mm. Yeah, he he's like he's like oh my gosh he has to get elected. You won. That's it. <laughs> I'm designing it now. I can't wait any longer. I'm so sorry. I know there's a whole democratic process, but I can't wait any longer. He's like, can, can I just can I just place her? Just, with yeah, we'll just it's two of us. We decided. Yeah, that's fine. It works, oh, right? So that's good. legal. So good. So many. You have to be a New Hampshire eligible voter. I do appreciate your vote of confidence. Oh, so much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, as a New Hampshire public school alumni, you've mentioned you're so proud of you know the what you've been able to do coming out of these schools you are passionate about evening out the inequalities what are some ways you hope to make this happen so one of the biggest priorities of my work um, as a candidate for senate and hopefully will would be senator is to um make the funding of our public education uh, fair. Um, so the funding of our public education now is currently done um, by predominantly off of the backs of taxpayers who are living on fixed incomes. And this is particularly problem, like problematic in areas where we have you know, property poor towns. So like my town, Sutton, for example, um, sorry, my golden retriever's barking. Oh, puppy. Yay. <laughs> um, so, um, 1998, there was a lawsuit against the state of New Hampshire um, called, I, I don't even know what he's barking at, um, so I might let him outside. Um, Talk about dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was something in 2018 I did a lot of. I canvassed, and because I wanted to show people how hard I was working, I took pictures of people's dogs and animals across the district and would post them on social media because voters didn't want to have their pictures online. So I'd say, well, but can I take a picture of your dog or cat? And like, 
people loved it. I loved it. It made it a lot yeah. more fun. You know, I had yeah. this like great catalog of like dogs of District 8. My last mailer for the district, I had 24 uh, boxes, 24 images, and they were all animals from around the district. And then I was in the middle with Doc, who used to go canvassing with me. Oh my animals God. played a very important role in my campaign in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, all right, I got my shout out. Oh my all right. Yeah. <laughs> He's very happy. Like, Mom, don't forget to mention me, but I have two other dogs. I have an Aussie named um, Pepper and then um, a new rescue Yorkie named Samson. I've never had a small dog. I'm very big dog energy. This dog is amazing. It's like so snuggly. Um, so anyway, on the topic of public education in New Hampshire, so in 1998, um, there was, so in New Hampshire, it's mandated in our state constitution that each child receives an adequate education. Definition of adequate has been debated in the courts of New Hampshire, and the last time that that was debated was in 1998, which now the state of New Hampshire contributes about thirty-five dollars to $3,700 per pupil for education. So in actuality, the cost of per pupil per edu um, uh, for education is about fifteen to sixteen thousand dollars a year. Yeah. So that difference ends up getting made up at the local level by property taxes. Right. So um, you know, you know, we have differing tax rates per town. So those differing tax rates, depending on whether or not you have property rich or property poor towns, mean you can pay a disproportionate amount of taxes. So like the, you know, mm -hmm. so what ends up happening is we end up with a scenario for which people who are living on fixed incomes who cannot keep up the rise of property taxes and say, well, I don't have any kids in the school district. Why am I paying for this? And so um, we end up with a narrative that's, you know, we've got people living on fixed incomes against children, which is not the conversation we should be having, right? No. So for me, you know, children should be getting an adequate education, a well-funded public education, no matter what zip code they live in in New Hampshire. So one way in which yeah. we can do that is to ensure that the state pays two thirds of the cost of the education mm -hmm. and reduce the amount of burden on the local taxpayer because we do not have um, a consistent tax rate base across the state of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. So for me, fighting for equity means fighting for equity and funding and education. So, mm -hmm. um, because that is, I've seen that personally, I've experienced that in my lived experience, but also know that in my studies that uh, a public education is one of the um, strongest return on investments, both in terms of economic prosperity for communities and also health outcomes in all other areas of people's lives. Yeah. So for me, building equity and how we fund public education in New Hampshire is a priority for me. And it is a priority for a lot of people in New Hampshire. So I've been endorsed by the NEA, the National Educators Association in New Hampshire. Um, I uh, am a very strong advocate for that. Um, so that's what I, where yeah, I prioritize yeah. equity. It's, it's, I, I've always thought it's so crazy the way that school districts operate in, in, in those terms. I, I, so I grew up in Texas. It's a similar sort of, it's funded by the, whatever school town you're in. And even sometimes within the city itself, Mm -hmm. There's like a line where some people don't go to that school and some people go, it's literally just if you're inside of this one thing. And then like I, so my, my school district was like a destination town. People would move there mm -hmm. to go to this school district because it was well-funded and there's all kinds mm -hmm. of opportunities from the arts all the way through um, like a full aquatic center for the mm -hmm. high school, you know, which is crazy. That's 
insane, an indoor aquatic center. What? And it's, it's something where people would move to that area. I don't understand who came up with this system. <laughs> well, it, ha it happens a lot. It happens in New Hampshire. I mean, people move from school district to school district to be able to ensure that their kid gets an education that allows them to meet their potential. And I think what it does, and it has a tremendous impact on, you know, our rural communities because people don't move there because the tax base is so high. Mm -hmm. um, they have difficulty, um, you know, keeping people in New Hampshire because they feel like there are only limited amounts of places where they can move to and be able to afford the housing. Um, so it has an impact, much greater impact alongside of whether or not children are getting the education for which our constitution mandates. You know, yeah. and so, um, you know, this, this and, and to me, it's, it's, it's about making investments. So, you know, we're making an investment in these children. We're making an investment in the future of New Hampshire. Um, and that's why, you know, when I talk about this with people and legislators, and um, I often will say, like, you are looking at that strong return on investment. We need this for other people. So that's where the embodiment of my lived experience matters when I talk about the, my professional knowledge and um, understanding of how a well-funded school system makes an impact on communities. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have mentioned your daughter and your friends and colleagues and bosses from times past and your husband. So it sounds like you have a good support system around you. Has that, has that helped you absorb the chaos when you feel like you're going a little crazy? Oh, yes. So, um, yes. And actually, my campaign manager who's listening now, Vedika Gopal, she's an incredible human being. Um, yes. I mean, this work cannot be done without the support of people who love you. I mean, there's, we had a phone bank here of 10 plus people yesterday and called over 2,700 people. And, you know, my husband was making food, making chili. He'd made like a venison old meat sandwich for folks. We had like, you know, we had, you know, the caucus um, campaigns director here. We had, you know, friends, close friends. Um, my friend who just now uh, won her primary was here doing phone banking for us. And um, oh, wow. yeah, there's this, this kind of work, this kind of race requires a lot of investment of time, self, family. Um, I, you know, take time off from work to be able to achieve goals of um, campaign. Um, if I, uh, you know, when I win, hopefully if I win, um, I will take, I will work part time in order to, because the Senate in New Hampshire only gets paid $100 a year. It's essentially volunteer work. Um, so, but it, uh, yeah. No. Yeah. You know, but I don't even think Bloomberg may, or whoever is the, whoever is the mayor, de Blasio, I don't even think he makes that much money. Still. That's uh, crazy. Hundred dollars a year. I feel like that's really bad. That's though, literally that is that is that is that is that's volunteer work. It is well, and so this is why we tend to have a legislature that's older. It's mostly retired. Sixty average age is sixty-two, mm -hmm. wealthy and retired, because the only people who run for office are people who can afford it. And so this was, you know, there a factor for why I'm running. Like it's not. It's not a citizen legislature if it only represents um, uh, if it only represents one portion of our demographic. So for me, you know, having you know women who have children and are holding a career, um, you know, are 
are able to hold these roles and to be able to show people how it's done. I mean, people say, why would you spend your entire adult life building a career for which you have a middle-class life to then want to take a pay cut of half? I'm like, because it shouldn't be like this. Yeah. That's why. And I'm willing to make that sacrifice, but I can only make that sacrifice because my partner, my husband is supportive. You know, he also grew up in difficult circumstances and understands the impact of this work on people's lives. So yeah, there's no way that I could do this without, I mean, two people who I learned all of the campaigning work from, actually several people I learned campaigning work from in 2018, Molly Cowan and Ernst and Nick Taylor, they still help me, still help me to this day, even though they're doing different races and different jobs, Mm. you know? And so, um, because it really takes a lot of support and effort and um, to be able to pull off a race like this. Um, we've, we've now fundraised about $130,000, which is, you know, about $30,000 more than where we were at this time last cycle. Yeah. Um, because people believe in the work, they believe in the effort. Um, exactly. You know, and so, yeah, I mean, at all levels, we're supported either through fundraising or by sweet notes that people send or, you know, hosting Zooms like this where people learn about the race and, um, you know, learn about us. And um, yeah, I mean, I am also somebody who's, sorry, my other dog's at the door now. <laughs> it's like in and out, in and out, in and out, all day long. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, so, you know, the work could not get done if I did not support of my husband and, um, you know, friends and have an excellent campaign manager and then volunteers who believe in the work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I have a really strong, my siblings are very supportive too, which is great, you oh, know. Good. Um, good. So, yeah. Well, the fact check fairy came through, and we we found out uh, Blasio's actually two hundred k, but dumb. that's not even <laughs> Thanks, so fact check wildly fairy, wrong. Thank you very much for that, <laughs> and I'm gonna be quiet for most of the rest of this. It's not my interview anyway. No, but I just like um, yeah, I I really that's it's something where it really makes sense. It the the whole rich retired people are the only ones who have the time, who have the money to be able to take such a serious pay cut in these types of things. And then that's why all the power still stays where it does because those are the people who are like, oh, it's fine. I'm representing your community. You're not, you're not though. You're not. (laughs) It's not to say that there aren't people who are of means that couldn't represent us. It's just, there's something to be said about the disproportionate imbalance of individuals of those means representing large swaths of the population don't understand the impact of a lot of the policies and the laws that are created. Mm. I mean, feel the impact of it. Right. You know? And so um, that's where it's really important to me that our legislature begins to resemble how New Hampshire actually looks because mm-hmm. we'll come up with solutions that actually meet the needs of individuals who live here. Mm-hmm. You know? So hopefully I'm, I'm one person, there's Becky and she's a mom and, um, you know, she's a disability rights lawyer and, um, you know, she's incredible. And so we have a very shared interest in changing and shifting the way that politics looks and feels. And 
And so it's more like an invitation to others to participate that is gatekept by individuals who want to just be held in power. Um, so, you know, for us, it's about creating a sense of invitation to participate in democracy, not, well, we're just chosen people. Give us all the power. We'll do the work. Don't you worry. You know, it's more of a like, well, let's build a bench. You know, let's build a bench. So even in this process, I've been engaged. I mean, you're building the bench and it's even in this process now I've recruited a couple I recruited a woman from where to run for house seat and I've been very supportive of her um you know so I was on a zoom with Cory Booker a couple weeks ago and he said something I really believe in he said you know when people say they want to run for office show up for them show yeah. up and support show up you know like you know get a phone when they call offering them how to navigate the process like it's more than just saying yeah good idea you go do that no mm -hmm. because it's isolating and it's you know it can I often would describe like being a candidate sometimes feels like being roadkill on the side of the street and everybody's picking you to death because they just want everything from you all the yeah. time. So unless you're like resolute and who you are as a person and have that strong support system, you know, and sometimes being the strong support system is, is being someone who's been through the process and then offering your insight and support while someone else goes through it. And so when I invite somebody to run for office, I'm there for them. You know, it's like Becky, I was, you know, there for her, there's to the editor doing call time you know, giving her money and, you know, doing things to help her and, you know, pick up the phone when she's like frustrated or doesn't know how to make sense out of something, you know, and same thing with Ben Paveglio, who's running in where Hillsborough too. Same thing with her. Sometimes call and freak out. How do you do this? I gotta get to work. I gotta do this. And I'm like, honey, you're fine. You figured out, we'll get this done, you know, and like letting her know she's not alone, you know, yeah. we're doing a Zoom tomorrow night with some, uh, a new woman, uh, a young woman who's running in New Hampshire in the house, uh, Stephanie Highland. So, support her while she builds her campaign so for me it's about you know creating a sense of invitation to participate not creating process so you know you can gatekeep for others I mean that's yeah. been the problem right we've had people keeping us and um really want to take and dismantle that, that process yeah. so it's more inviting for others um, yeah. and they can see the real joy in the work yeah way more yeah. inclusive I like that of way course. More it has to be yeah well, this process belongs to all of us so yeah. when people act like it's a gatekeeping situation that's not about serving democracy it's about serving your ego and so for me right. making you know sharing it is how it should be yeah. we're all engaged in this process to some degree whether you like it or not mm. even if you decide you're not going to vote which i've heard people say that too and i think well then you were just relinquishing your right mm -hmm. would you do that you know yeah. so um either influencing the process or being influenced by the process but you can't avoid being involved yeah. You know, so um, yeah. for me, I'd rather just actively involve. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, before we get to our last two questions, okay. which is crazy, this flew by. Um, yeah. <laughs> is there anything else that you would like to add that we didn't touch on election specifics and where we can find you online? Well, we already found oh. you, but we're the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so folks are looking to find out more about our campaign, make contributions, which we could always use. Um, the website is www.jenn4nh.com. number nhcom It's gen4nh.com. Um, I am, uh, my email is jalfredpeaster, all one word, at gmail.com. And then my cell phone number is 603-660-6561. Call anytime. Um, and happy to talk to you about Senate District 8 and the needs here. Um, you know, I really appreciated the questions that you asked in this process because I really enjoy talking about the foundational values that led me to this work and what will influence me while I'm at the State House. So, um, 
I think you've done a good job covering those things and allowing me to expand on that. So I sincerely appreciate that. I, I do want to reiterate the message that for folks who are feeling a sense of despair in our current political climate, um, sometimes it's, it can be really difficult to continue to do the work. Keep in mind that you might be that light for somebody else. So, um, you know, empower yourself to think a little bit differently about the way you impact those around you and know that there's a lot of power in deciding to become active in the process um, and uh, grieve when you need to, but uh, get back to work as soon as possible. Mm, so that's what I'd like that. to share. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so much inspiration. Like, <sighs> so moving. Well, I ask the same last two questions to everyone that comes through the podcast. First, what is your second favorite color? Oh my goodness. So I saw you were gonna ask me this question and I was like, I asked Vedika, I was like, do I have a favorite color? I don't even think I have a favorite color. <laughs> you know, I don't think I have. I mean, like, I don't have, do you have one. A, like, do you have a second favorite dinosaur? <laughs> no, but it's funny you mentioned that. My daughter loves dinosaurs, so uh, she told me recently she feels like a T Rex, which you know is the most vicious dinosaur. <laughs> yes. So I'm a little big head and little arms. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, no, I don't have a second favorite dinosaur. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I wish I had, I mean, I don't have favorite colors. Like I, I wear a lot of neutral colors, I think. Cause, um, I don't know why. But. Would you go, would you, would you either go like cream colored or gray? Ooh, good question. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on the time of year. So I'm very seasonal. Mm-hmm. Like in the summertime, I wear a lot of bright colors. And then once you start to get into the fall, because I live in New England, it's a lot of puritanical colors, you know, black and white. <laughs> I don't put them in the Puritan hat. <laughs> it's just a very New England thing, right? We start wearing dark colors all the time because we're basically going into mourning for the fact that it's going to be freezing for so long. <laughs> yeah, like Medica's wearing a dark colored shirt today. I'm wearing actually the sweater that my husband's grandmother, it was his, my husband's grandmother's favorite sweater. And I just absolutely love the sweater. It has these huge deep pockets, but it's basically like wearing a blanket. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I'm very seasonal in my colors. So right now I'm heading into the pure curtain colors. Um, blacks, whites, like rich reds, things like that. So okay. I feel like that's that that's that funny. works. That's a that that's an answer that's to the yes. question, right? It works. It's in the same we're on the color wheel. Mm-hmm. Yes. It works. <laughs> and lastly, what in your opinion is the best part of being a woman? Oh, this is such an incredible question that I thought I, th- I thought about and I thought, well, you know, I feel like it's hard to answer this question without speaking to like gender norms. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, because ways in which we experience being a woman in this world can be vastly different for so many people. Um, for me personally, one of the things that I think most about when I think about being a woman, I think about how um, you know, I'm going to frame this in the form of, I learned this concept about every characteristic being a balcony in a basement. I went through this leadership training at the college a couple of years ago and often talk about balconies and basements. So like, I'm a very impatient person. 
that's kind of a basement. The balcony of that is I'm very decisive. So you don't have to wait for me to make decisions. Oh. You know? And so like there's, you can look at any characteristic in an individual and depending on the context, decide whether or not it's actually beneficial or works against you. And so that's true of any characteristic, any person anywhere. And so one of the characteristics about being a woman that I think often gets used against us is, um, I also cherish very much is the um, sense of emotional nature we get characterized with. So, you know, um, like we're often characterized as being too emotional. Oh, she's all worked up, you know, like why is she being this? Or she's too much that, or just smile on your face, or, you know, all, all these constant, near constant coaching about us as emotional creatures. And, um, you know, it's something I embrace, uh, that vulnerability, that exposure of my emotional self. Um, I'm also incredibly logical and cannot divorce those two things. You know, because that emotional aspect of who I am informs decision making. Because you know, both Betty and I, my campaign manager, and I, one of us, one of the things we've connected on is we both have a love of neuroscience. So one of my favorite writers is um, uh, Robert Sapolsky. Uh, he recently released a book called uh, "Behave: The Neuroscience of the Best and the Worst of Us." He argues in that book about how you cannot divorce um, thinking, emotional, and logical thinking from one another, or you'd have cold-blooded decision-making that would be devoid of any humanity. Uh-huh. And I think one of the things that we as women more benefit to be able to do is to use those emotions to make humane decisions. Where men are often paced away from being seen as emotional human beings, even though they are. So they create an environment for which they reject emotional um, you know, experiences. And we, we get to have the benefit of being able to fully live in those feelings. And for me, being a woman means using that emotional, um, cultural, sort of, um, you know, uh, proved sense of self in a way that uh, informs my logical decision making without being hampered by cultural norms that say it's not okay to be emotional, Mm. where men often face that. Mm. You know, so for me, one of the greatest things about being a woman is an emotional creature and um and in using that emotional um you know uh culturally accepted uh narrative around women in a way that informs my decision making that in- enhances the humanity of the work that i do mm. wow mm-hmm. that was cool yeah that's so that's such a good way of looking at it too yeah. man you're giving me all uh, steve has another thing to put in a file in my brain because like basements and balconies that's such you know it's it's something you you know you you people say like don't always look on the good side of people this this and that it's like okay but like you you can you can acknowledge uh i don't know traits that can be construed as bad like in being impatient but also be like but this means that i can make very direct decisions based on you know it, that's just so mm-hmm. I love that. Well, it's, I mean, one of the things I think in our culture we tend to do is we idealize certain characteristics and we don't recognize that sometimes characteristics can be, I mean, it's all about context and how you apply those characteristics. So it's like that mentality of like, if you have a hammer, everything becomes a nail. Mm -hmm. So you actually have a wide range of like tools in your toolbox as a human being. And it's a a matter of which one you want to use and which one you're more comfortable with. So recognizing that at any moment you have a variety of tools available to you 
sometimes we just habituate or get known for certain tools because we execute them so well. Mm-hmm. They can also work to our detriment. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, same thing with any emotional or intellectual characteristic. And so, you know, I, and it, it's, it's a more um, uh, accepting way to see ourselves as well. So like mm-hmm. all of us are fallible. All of us have the potential to apply tools in a way that are not actually constructive or helpful, but maybe in moments of panic or, you know, um, you know, if like if somehow we are like triggered into survival mode, we maybe execute something in a way that's not actually in line with how we see our intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, we can keep in mind at any time we can step back and look and say to ourselves, is this the only, is this really the only way I have to deal with this? Mm-hmm. Or is this the best context for this approach? Mm-hmm. And you could explore circumstance and understand that it's not necessarily that characteristic so bad about you it's just maybe you put it executed in the wrong context you know and so that's one one way or or you know or maybe you find that you execute certain things in a better way in certain contexts so like seeing yourself as a dynamic and fluid individual with lots of options at any time Mm. um you know and that sometimes it's just trial and error to find which context or serve which tools Mm -hmm. um Sometimes that's dependent on the audience of the individuals you're working with. Yeah. So it's a more uh, holistic way of seeing ourselves and saying, I'm all good or I'm all bad or this one thing I do is so annoying. When actuality, in some contexts, that one thing that you do is annoying probably has helped you in some capacity. <laughs> so it's not really that bad. And who's it bad for? Is it bad for you? Is it bad for other people? Is it bad for a subsection of people? Yeah. You know, so um, really taking the time to think, think through through that for yourself and um, managing how your impact, you know, what that intention is in the utilization of that tool and then the impact you're having. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. They, I feel like women just have more emotional tools available to them that they can exercise mm-hmm. explicitly where men often are told, you know, crying or, um, you know, demonstrative emotion or um, or anything that feels soft, you know, like a, women tend to be soft, mm-hmm. thought of as soft emotionally, but that's not available to men, which I would say is actually very much available to you. And we would all be better leaders and humans if we fully lived that. Too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Learn that, men. <laughs> you hear that? Yes, men. Say it. She said it. <laughs> Retired of it. Yeah. It's a burden for men. It's a burden for women. And, you know, for us to fully be human and alive, we should have access to all sides of ourselves. Um, and so yeah. emotional capacity is one of them. Yeah. Um, oh. so. Agreed. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Jen. You are exactly the kind of person that we all dream of holding positions of, of power, positions of change, because you're going to be the type of person that you not going to be, you are the type of person that is looking on as not, not just a grand scope because you see it all, but then you're also saying, okay, what are these little subsects? What are these little things that we can do these small things at a time while also saying all these things together are going to make for X, Y, and Z in the end. And you are just absolutely the perfect person to be in these, this type of position. Oh, thank you, Heather. I appreciate that. That's so sweet. Oh my God. <laughs> like all blushing. I'm like, I'm like fangirling too. I'm yeah. like, you're so cool. Yeah, so interesting. I definitely like learning about everything that you said. And I'm going to go inform people in person about the things that you said. <laughs> 
I gave you my phone number. Call me anytime. <laughs> um, seriously, call me anytime. I hope we can stay friends and stay in touch. Yes, you know? um, absolutely. We're definitely going to keep posted with. And and super quickly, shout out the election day so that everybody right. knows. Yes. Yeah. So New Hampshire's November 3rd. And you actually, the absentee ballots will start to be mailed out to folks, um, I think, first of October. So we'll begin to, that's why we've been, um, adamant about doing call time and reaching voters now is because they'll have an opportunity to vote um within mm. the next couple of weeks so great thinking sure. amazing mm. and thank you historians for tuning in again subscribe rate review tell your friends tell your postman tell everyone um you know we really want everyone to be able to get to hear these stories from these incredible women that we get to talk to every single week you can follow us on the social medias for some extra inspiration on Twitter. At the Her Story Pod. Instagram. At Women of Her Story Podcast. And you can visit our website at ofherstory.com. Oh, you got that one off. Look, that's the you one, didn't that's even have the to one. read it. <laughs> natural. Until next week, be safe, stay healthy, and show the world what you're made of. Bye. <laughs>